Greetings and welcome to a special edition of Credo Podcast, the place where I try to do my best to keep Catholic truth in front of us so that we can overcome the temptations of relativism. I'm Father Peter DeGanzik, and with me again today is Ms. Randy Hockenberger. She is the Director of Evangelization here at St. Joseph's Parish. And as you know, we've already done two episodes talking about Bob Sh- Dr. Bob Schutz's book called Be Healed. This is now going to be the third installment as we are now wrapping up our Lenten journey and the healing holy hours that we had. But let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you have given us the church, you have given us the sacraments, so that we will always know of your presence, we will always experience your goodness, and will always be able to draw ever nearer to you. Through the grace and power of your Holy Spirit, I ask you now to send your Spirit upon all who hear these words, fill them with hope, fill them with life, and animate them for your kingdom, for you are Lord forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So I'm kind of excited about this particular part of the three parts that uh, his book had because this is going to deal with the sacraments and how the sacraments are that efficacious way that God has given us to be able to live in this world. And not only to live in this world, but whenever we're experiencing the pains, the sufferings, the difficulties, the trials, the seven wounds, that the, the sacraments were given to us because of that. So uh, I know, Randy, you've been spending a lot of time with this book. You've been doing a lot of good things. Um, and I know you've got a few things that you'd like to do as, as a way of intro to this third part. So feel free. Sure. Well, just to maybe give a little bit of the structure. So, of course, in the first part of the book, we were encountering Jesus as teacher, as healer. Um, and then the second, the middle part of the book, was where we were discovering what it was to have that wound, what the woundedness looked like. And so this is the part of the book where we're piecing that all together and we're doing it, like you say, through the sacraments as a, as a primary means, which for us as Catholics is very important. And perhaps for many of us as Catholics, we never really thought of the sacraments in this sort of healing light. I mean, maybe the sacraments of healing, like anointing of the sick or reconciliation, but to have all seven sacraments have a role to play in this is really, really powerful. As I've mentioned in, I think, some of our previous episodes, Dr. Bob, I think, felt that this was such a powerful thing to talk about that he expounded upon it in his book, Be Transformed. And in that book, among other things that he does, is he is actually uniting uh, a core wound that the wounds that have been discussed in this book be healed with a particular sacrament and taking a chapter at a time to talk about how a particular sacrament is a way of addressing and healing a particular core wound. You know, I find it always interesting because um, I was even kind of um, engaged when he was writing about how he went through that period of his own life where he found the sacraments boring. And he talked about that kind of like in length a little bit at, at the beginning of that one chapter, talking about how he himself had not really internalized or understood or appreciated the depths of the sacraments. And it was through that one moment where suddenly it was like a revelation to him. The Holy Spirit overwhelmed him and he realized what was happening in all of the sacraments. Now, the four sacraments of healing, the Eucharist, the reconciliation, the anointing of the sick. And what did I just go blank? The fourth one is... I thought there were the two. <laughs> I always looked at Eucharist as a sacrament of initiation. Oh, no, baptism. Baptism, <laughs> Eucharist, th- these are all sacraments of healing. Yeah, there's always different ways to categorize the sacraments. So now you can see, I, obviously, my brain is not what it used to be. But anyhow, I used to have all that stuff at the tip of my tongue. Um, he talks specifically about reconciliation and about anointing because those are the two 
that we particularly associate with uh, forgiveness of sins and uh, the transformation, if you will, of the, the soul. But lest we forget, the Eucharist is a healing salve. It's a thing that we take in that also brings about some of God's mercy within us. And of course, baptism washing away original sin. Yeah, yeah it's to, just to tie that in specifically, in his book, Be Transformed, he notes the Eucharist specifically as healing the wound of abandonment, because now you have God literally with you. You are receiving the Lord who has adopted you as um, an adopted son or daughter. And in baptism, it's a similar sort of strain of thought, and that is healing the wound of rejection. So other people in your life may have rejected you, but God is taking you in into his family in that sacrament. And that's, I think, an important thing. Uh, as a priest, I can always say that administering the sacraments I, I have had many, many opportunities to deal with someone who was transformed through the sacraments, through the sacrament of the Eucharist in particular, or the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. Um, Dr. Bob talks about his own personal experience with his brother in the book, and what a powerful, powerful description he gives of how his brother was actually given those last couple of weeks of his life through the sacrament of anointing to be revived, if you will, so that he could be with his family for those those last days of his life. Yeah, to, just to have that uh, outlook, and of course that outlook comes through prayer, so he wouldn't have had this insight without it. This idea that this uh, suffering that his brother was going through and his family also, as ones that had to see his brother wither away slowly and eventually pass, yet the insight that he d talks about in the book is this... Um, this suffering that you're going through now with your family, ultimately it's going to provide more healing for your whole family than if this wasn't to be the case. And of course, that's always our hope when we are going through a kind of a dark time. But to have that assurance is just such a wonderful grace. And I, I think many of us, if when we are in dark places, if we would be more united in prayer and, and doing our best to cooperate with God, even if it feels like we can't have his presence or we're, you know, really depressed or anxious or something, but to just really stick at it, those nuggets of hope really come through and they can help that make sense. And that was something that he really expounded upon in his chapter on redemptive suffering. Amongst the different things that I have noticed as a priest, take for, for instance, his talk about the anointing of the sick. That, to me, is a sacrament that kind of got a bad rap for a while, and it became one of these things that we were handing out like candy. So they had all of these anointing services, and even when I got to Blessed Sacrament, my previous parish, they were doing it like weekly. And the same eight people were coming up, and so I started to ask them, like, what's the serious illness you have? What is it that you, you want? Oh, I had sniffles this morning. Oh, I, I, my, my throat was a little scratchy this morning. It's like... That missed the depth and the beauty, I believe, of the sacrament, and I think that there was that whole point where they moved away from the language of extreme unction, of, of last rites, which understandably I think we needed to do, but then went too far to the other extreme that it's going to heal every last little ill, pain, whatever you have going on in your life. And, and that I think is why so many people really can't appreciate the sacrament anymore. I think one of the saddest things for me is whenever I'm called either to go into a hospital or something tragic just happened, and all of a sudden I get the call and I show up and the only person really in the room with me is the dying person or the injured person or the sick person. I really believe now more than ever that the, the anointing of the sick, the sacrament of extreme unction was always meant to be done in community. That family members particularly gathered around the person 
makes such a huge difference. And I think that's why Dr. Bob's um, story is so powerful because the whole family was transformed by what they experienced in that moment. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, even in my experience, when I was working in a hospital environment doing chaplaincy work, you know, you there seems to be that hunger in the in some of the families. Maybe not all of them who can appreciate the sacrament, but many a time, uh, you know, the the priest chaplain is just doing his rounds. And oftentimes the family can't be there. So it's different than when you're getting a call as a parish priest and you're going, there's almost an expectation that maybe there'll be a family member there. But uh, the priest chaplain would often go and anoint a person. And, and then, the efficacy of the sacrament is not in doubt. Oh, there. not the at person, all. The person is receiving the grace and the forgiveness and all the other stuff. But then we would get a call from the family, like, I want my loved one to be anointed. And I'm like, your loved one was anointed actually several times this week, but we weren't there for it. And so then I would have to kind of schedule a time when the priest and the family could, and I was playing the intermediary because it, it, it mattered to them that they were present. And there's a lot of times when they are present. And, I, and those are the moments that I'm always myself kind of like, wow. I had one particular case. There was a woman, she was actually in the medical profession. She was a nurse and she had a, she was a Catholic. She went to church and all the other stuff. She had this view of death that was very un-Catholic. This is just something that, you know, it happens. Her, we, the, the sacraments aren't really about healing. Uh, to make a long story short, she just became what I want to call a believing atheist. You know, it just when someone's dying, let's just get it over with. Let's just do this. Let's not just, you know, like a person's in a coma. Come on. What, let's just like she even admitted to me at one point that sometimes she's tempted to increase their morphine and other things that would hasten their death. And I looked at her and I said, you realize what you just said? It's, it's horrific in my, in my view, what you said to me, a priest. And she looked at me and she says, oh, but come on, Father, the body's failing anyhow. The person's really not there. Let's just do this. Well, <laughs> now comes time for her own family. Her father falls into a coma, has a bad stroke and falls into a coma. He's now bedridden. So they bring him into the home. They put him on the care at home and all this other stuff. And he's just lying there. And the people in hospice, a lot of times, they could be there for months, but they'll tell you the day, like, all right, the turn has started, this is the time, get the priest. So she calls me, she says, all right, whatever. We start having this conversation while he's there in front of us. And she says, you know, he's not really here, Father. I said, oh no, yes, he is. He's still here and that's why I'm gonna come and anoint him. No, no, you don't understand. He's in a coma, he's, he's may as well be brain dead. So I looked at her and I said, I think you're missing something here, but you know what, let's just pray. As I said the words, in the name of the Father and of the Son, he lifted his hand and blessed himself. And the look on her face, <laughs> boom. Again, not just the transformation of him, but of his daughter through yeah. this sacrament. And it just blew my mind. She became very active in things like palliative care. She became very active in doing things like the Ministry of Consolation in the parish. The, the sacraments have that kind of efficacy, not just for the person sometimes, but for the whole family. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it makes sense. It really tracks with what we know about God and his abundant graces. You know, he's not going to have a sacrament for us to partake in and receive and just, you know, like laser beam it to the person receiving it. There's an outpouring um, everywhere uh, amongst everyone, which is what makes the community so important. And, you know, uh, this detracts a little bit from the topic of the book, but because this is a podcast about relativism, I sometimes think that 
this, these misconceptions that we have about the sacraments and the pendulum swinging from one way to the other, which, which even happened with the Eucharist, it went from almost nobody receiving to now everybody receiving, oftentimes in cer- certain circumstances, not even in a state of grace. I really do feel like this is one of those attacks of the devil on the church to undermine the sacraments because they are this powerful. And the devil wouldn't bother with doing this unless it mattered. And it does matter. Oh, man, does it matter. Holy cow. You know, and I think about like what you were just saying, and I've lived through it. Like you haven't seen a lot of it, but I lived through the 70s and the 80s. I saw how the mass was turned into a performance. It really wasn't a prayerful thing. Um, I could go through all the things that happened in the 70s, especially in the 80s. I'm going to spare the audience that. <laughs> it just If you went through it, you know what I'm talking about. But anyhow, but that that era is what I believe really hurt the sacraments the most because we we started to move the sacraments from being God's grace extending into our souls and pulling us out of the mire of this world so that we can have healing to social justice. The sacraments are about like, you know, let's make a bigger thing about the sign of peace than about the actual reception of the Eucharist, which is about to happen. So churches all of a sudden were having these long protracted drawn out signs of peace. Well, yes, I should be reconciling, but that's a symbolic thing. The healing that's going to take place through my offering of peace to you is when we both go on that communion line in a state of grace to receive that Eucharist that's going to bind us together in union in Christ. Yeah, and I think actually to kind of tie that in and bring it back to the book so we don't get too off the the track here. <laughs> you, do, uh, <laughs> you do know us, don't you? <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Bob does mention about the ways that we need to cooperate with this grace. Like, So he even says that it was at one of those Christ Renews Parish retreats that he was really able to activate the graces that were laying dormant in the sacraments that he had. And, and that's a key thing. He says they were there but they were laying dormant. I don't want anybody to miss that because I say this all the time. Children will receive, they'll come up and receive the confirmation. The bishop will lay his hands on them and anoint them. And then they walk out like nothing changed. Yeah, so we think oftentimes in in our faith, and I I think our external culture kind of drills this into us because we have such a need of productivity, utilitarianism. So our faith becomes more of something that we do than something that who we are. And so we're always more comfortable being in an active space as opposed to a receptive space. Um, You know, maybe some people would call it passive, but I would call it more interior. And this is where the sacraments are really working because they're working on us and in us and through us. It's not something that we're necessarily doing. The, what we do is cooperate with it. So by, you know, worthily receiving the sacrament of Eucharist by having had made a good confession and being in a state of grace and participating fully in the mass and attentively and then going up and receiving, those are the actions by which we can be afforded the grace of the sacrament, not something extra that we're doing. We don't have to build extra ritual upon what is already there. We just have to allow ourselves to kind of be enveloped by what the church has already given us in her wisdom. Yeah, the word that we use a lot of times is properly disposed. God does not want to impose anything on us, but if we're not properly disposed, it could become an imposition by God. And that's why we should spend some quiet time in prayer before Mass begins. That's why we should be getting our souls, if you will, ready through the sacrament of confession by going and and confessing our sins and receiving that absolution. But that proper disposition, I think he makes it, like he tells it story-wise about how being ready, like so he had all of these dormant graces just sitting there waiting, and then all of a sudden once activated, 
he was transformed and he realized the importance of the full act of participation, engaging in it, being ready for it, accepting it. Huge, huge insights that he gives that I think if people truly want to be healed, it's the same thing. Whether you have any of the core wounds, whether you're going through any of the seven deadly sins, if you're, you're struggling at the root of your, your being, yeah, the grace that comes can, it's like water that absorbs into a pot that's so dry and all of a sudden within minutes sometimes you see the plants start to perk up again. Yeah, and he, I mean, if you, as you recall, earlier in the book, he brings up miraculous healings that he has witnessed. But then he also talks about in, in this book, well, what happens when you are praying for healing and you are not receiving it? Now, of course, God may have another plan in mind, but there is an area of that which he touches upon where perhaps, you know, our own lack of faith is getting in the way of that. Um, because when we lack that faith, we don't. We may not mean to do it, but we are actually pulling away some of that cooperation because we're not abandoning ourselves and surrendering ourselves to Christ as we ought to do. And he even says uh, that if you don't believe that God can heal you, then your God is not big enough and the cross is not real enough, which to me is exactly what it means to have a lacking in faith. You know, it's interesting how many people miss in the gospel stories how often Jesus will say, do you want to be healed? He asks the question first. He never imposes on them what they don't want. But he'll also say, do you believe that I can do this? Mm -hmm. Which is a whole separate question. So do I want to be healed? Yes. Do I believe you can do it? Well, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, that doubt right there all of a sudden can be what suppresses us and holds back some of that healing. Yeah, he brought up, I think it was earlier in the book, that imagery of you know a tightrope walker walking across, I don't know, Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, somewhere, you know, dangerous. And you watch him as a spectator. Oh, great, wonderful, he did it, woohoo. And then he goes again over the tightrope with a wheelbarrow. Oh, fantastic, wonderful. And now he's like, does anybody want to get in with me? <laughs> and, and that's when people go, mm, no, I'm, I'll just watch things. I, it's, it's better to be a spectator on this one, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what we can be in our faith. We can watch all of these wonderful things that God is doing, participate in it, you know, as as best we feel like we can. But then there's that moment where our faith is going to almost demand that we get in that wheelbarrow. And will we do it? Again, because you brought up relativism earlier, and he's doing, I think, a fantastic job of revealing Catholic truth in this age of relativism, because there are a lot of relatives, relativists out there sitting in our pews who that's how they end up on the sidelines because, well, that's your way. That's not quite my way. I, I understand what you know the church teaches, but I really don't want to. Be, and that kind of attitude is what I think suppresses the belief that, well, yeah, Christ can do this. He can take a small piece of bread and change the substance of it into his body, blood, soul, and divinity. He can take the wine, change it into the substance of his body, blood, soul, and divinity. He can take your soul in baptism and change it from being a pagan into a member, a joined to his body, the church. It's, if we really don't truly believe that, then why do we approach the sacraments at all? Well, yeah, I mean, it really does sometimes beg the question. And I mean, maybe it's something that could be uh, out of habit or out of many different things. Of course, of course, we know that the spiritual life is a journey. And I think for a lot of people, we've seen the fallout of not uniting 
this supernatural belief with what it is that we do. And I mean, there could be many reasons for that. Maybe there was poor catechesis. Maybe there was just such brokenness in somebody's um, life growing up that it just was really closed off and so many different reasons why. But I mean, I know, and you know probably many people as well, who grew up with some awareness of the faith. You know, maybe they went to Catholic school or maybe they were catechized fairly well, or maybe it was even practiced in the home. But it never became real for them, personal for them. And it almost was more damaging in that way because at some point they got to a point in their faith where it was like, what does this mean to me? Why am I doing this? I don't understand any of this. This doesn't make any sense to me. And we all really actually do wrestle with those questions. But for a lot of people who have a shaky foundation, they end up walking away going, well, I just don't think it's real. And I'm really now mad that this was imposed upon me for all these years of my life. And I will never look back. That became one of the biggest jokes, I think, of the 70s and 80s and 90s. We'll let our child decide when they get older. That became a big thing because of that reaction to saying, this was imposed upon me. I'm not going to impose it upon my child. It's like, yeah, well, maybe it's because we're also coming out of an era of really bad catechesis and other things. If I had to do some takeaways totally from what Dr. Bob Schutz is trying to communicate to us. There's several different layers of it in my mind. And I think the first layer of it for me is the whole thing of faith. Mm. I think he, he really, as a scientist, as someone who talks about his own conversion, how he was even himself away from the faith and going through the motions at some times, the faith itself really has to be reignited. I think that's, that's the, my first takeaway from him. The second takeaway I have from him is that it's real. We are talking about real things, real human problems, real human um, conditions, real human hurts and wounds. So it has to be made real also in the sacraments and it has to be made real in Christ because the two coming together is what's going to lead to what I think is the third layer and that's that release, that freedom that the sacraments bring us. See, so many people see the church as restrictive I've always seen it through the sacraments. The church is redemptive. It's liberating. And when someone says to me, oh, the church, it's so filled with restrictions and rules. And well, no, we've been freed so that we can live as the children of God. My biggest takeaway is that he wants to see that in every, and you see it in people's faces sometimes. Their wounds are there. They're wearing it on their face. And they just don't want to accept the fact that it's real and, can, and something can be done about it. Yeah, actually, if I'll share this quote. This quote is from chapter 8, which is a chapter on redemptive suffering that kind of speaks to that. Um, and it really pierced me the first time I read it. And in reviewing this book again for these podcasts, it, it, it hit me again. Denying our pain is what keeps us continuing to feel so hopelessly alone. In contrast, hope is restored when, in communion with Jesus, we face our pain and despise the shame as Jesus did in his passion and throughout his life. Amen. He, you know, he, the way he weaves in certain things, I, I always get a, I, like, I just love the way he writes. He, 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 it's easy to, to comprehend. At some points, he's talking about a story. It's very easy to read. Then he's talking about something that's a little bit deeper, or he's talking about the efficaciousness of the sacraments. And all of a sudden, it's like you go, wow, he just led me on this beautiful path of understanding. Yeah, he, he does open it up so easily. And, you know, because you think, 
okay, this guy is a psychologist, you know, he's trained, is he going to, you know, give me a bunch of techno babble or, you know, is this just going to be another one of those self-help books that go up on the shelf? But no, he communicates what's going on interiorly very, very well, very, very um, clearly and easily to understand. And he does it with uniting us to that faith component. So what we miss in so many other books that are in this kind of genre is that they, they separate the spirituality from the psychology of it all. And for a person of faith, that's an impossible thing to do. And I think that's why, you know, I've, you know, looked at materials and read books that deal with the topic of self-help and psychology, and they all fall short for me. One of the things, I, I guess, as we start to wrap up this, this three-part series, one of the things that that simplicity that Dr. Bob has is what showed up on our Healing Holy Hours. We didn't want to make them grand. We wanted to make them accessible. We wanted to make them spiritual, very deeply spiritual. We wanted to emphasize the healing presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. And that was it. Yeah. So we, we put the Blessed Sacrament in front of people. We took some of his thoughts and words. We witnessed on it a little bit and then allowed Jesus to do what he did. And I have to admit, there are several people that were somewhat skeptical when we were first doing it, who by the sixth one were saying, you know, this, I wish this would go on. And we're like, we, we'll do something in the future. Don't worry about it. But, um, you know, it's just like we're at that point now where, yes, now keep praying about it. And the next time maybe when we do this, I, I say to them, the next time maybe when we do this, you'll come even better prepared to receive those graces going from that skepticism. Like the first conversion had to be going from that skepticism to, yeah, Jesus really can do it. Now that you say Jesus really can do it, the next time we do it, he will. And yeah. in some cases already he did. And this is really the way that grace does work in this kind of incremental, almost unseen sort of way. So it, it can be so easy to dismiss it. And of course, you know, as people who are creating this space, it can be so tempting for us to think that it's something that we're doing. And th that's something that I always had in the back of my mind as we were, you know, preparing all of these holy hours was my job is to create a space, to, to provide a framework if you will, to by which the person coming who may not have the tools to engage spiritually can meet the Holy Spirit and then step away from that and allow Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit to do the work in the person. Because I, there's nothing that I would be able to ever do that could ever compare to what Jesus Christ can do for someone. It's what the, I, I love the old Dallas Jenkins line. It's not my job to multiply the loaves. It's just to provide the five. It's not my job to multiply the fish. I just provide the two. And that's how he, he did this whole thing that he's been able to do. God will do the miracles. We just have to provide the space. Yeah, Amen. definitely. Um, any closing thoughts on what, uh, you know, Dr. Bob has done or how it's uh, in effect... Uh, changed you or changed your view on saying things? Um, sure. Well, I guess first, I'll, well, which one, what should I start with first? I'll go with the closing remarks on the book and then that might be able to spark me an answer of how it might have changed my life. Um, I wasn't expecting to go personal with this, but so we'll get there. Um, I would say that if you have been able to make it through this book by this time, of, of course, our reading plan was roughly a part for each two weeks of Lent and you want more, he does have subsequent books in the series. And as we referenced several times now, Be Transformed, which is the newest one, seems like the most logical one. And there's about, there's about nine chapters in that book. The last seven of them are each of 
taking a sacrament and showing about the healing. So I would recommend that as kind of unofficial, maybe Easter reading for people. They could do a chapter or so a week and uh, double up when needed. But to go along with that, or even with the Be Healed book, to say that you don't have to go at that pace, that these books are really meant to be kind of marinated in, to be revisited over time, um, and to just go in at, at the pace that the Holy Spirit is calling you to. If you have not made it all the way through the Be Healed book yet, that's more than fine. Please sit with uh, sections of chapters and some of the discussion questions in there because they're so rich. If you just kind of blow through the book, you might miss some of the deeper healing for you because it's not just a book like, okay, this is how the inner workings of everything goes. He's asking really pointed uh, questions, I guess like a therapist would, and, and kind of bringing you through it. So if you can't afford therapy or if you're not at that point and you would like some help, this book can kind of do a little bit of that for you. And if you haven't gotten to the third part yet, Easter is a good time to unpack that because that chapter on redemptive suffering, it really coincides with Holy Week. Then the sacraments of healing section go pretty much with all of Easter because he's bringing up resurrection and how Jesus is doing all of this stuff with the sacraments. And then that last chapter on healing prayer, he actually ties it into the book to Pentecost. So if you need to kind of expand your reading on it, the Easter season will be a great time to do that. One of the things that happened as I was reading the book is it, it sparked within me again a love for the, for, the, for the church, for the sacraments. But it also sparked a desire in me to want to say to people, yes, God is. He really is in love with you. He wants to help you. So let him. And, you know, so often inside of me as a priest, especially, you can, you can get a little jaded. He, he got a little jaded in his life. I've met so many people that can get cynical with the, the church and, you know, the, all these sinful priests and cardinals and all these other things that come out. And at the end of it, I said, you know what? That's not what it's about. It, it's about me accepting that grace and just doing all that God has offered to me in any way I can. And so I, I hope everybody who hears these words can experience whatever healing it is that you need to experience. Yeah, you know, and just being open to the the process with the book. Uh, you know, like I said, sitting with it, but now, because I promise I would try to get to some personal part of it. You know, the, the book did transform me in the way that it helped me to kind of put that tangibility to especially the sacraments, which we've been talking about today, but to also give me a, a vocabulary and a way of understanding the woundedness of the person, which includes some of my own wounds. So those chapters in the middle were very important for me to kind of understand the way that I have core wounds that have affected me. And between reading the book and then going to these holy hours, not just planning them, but actually participating in them to the extent that I could, uh, it helped me to uncover what some of those wounds really are and those identity lies that hold me back and keep me from truly experiencing the healing of Christ. So now that I have the framework for that and the language for it, I can put that into prayer. And I have seen in my own uh, work with that with Jesus, his ability to draw some of that out of me and not make me afraid to go to those places in my heart that I always hide from, but rather to open those up and to allow his graces to pour into those spaces. And I always say again and again that the whole way of Christianity is just that. It's transformation. We're always going to be growing. We're always going to be getting closer and closer to Christ. And that's just the journey that we're on. If we, if we stagnate, well, then it's time to reinvigorate. 
And yeah. I think this Lent, a lot of people's faith was reinvigorated. I know mine was, and that, that's what part of the Lenten journey is about. Now I get excited about the fact that, oh, we're going to start the Easter journey. So, <laughs> and, that, you know, and that's got a power in and of itself. But anyhow, as we begin to bring this to a close, just a reminder that it's always helpful if you follow this podcast on whatever platform you're doing, sharing it, liking it, all those different things you could do. I'd really appreciate that. And please do pray for me, pray for Randy, and know that we constantly are keeping you in our own prayers, especially praying that if you're carrying any burden whatsoever, that God, through his healing grace, will give you that peace and that healing that only he can give. So without further ado, the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we thank everybody for listening. We'll see you again soon. Bye.